If you got your Bibles, we're in Acts 19, and we'll uh, we're going to finish chapter 19. And and uh, this is a funny. This is not a, as funny a story as last week, where people got beat up and lost their clothes and ran out of town. But this one is is a pretty good one too. A riot takes place. Today, idols are more in the self than they are on the shelf. God's word's three basic biblical rules say this. Every person is serving God or gods in his life. Every person is transformed into the image of his God. And mankind creates and forms a structure of society in its own image. Went on to say this. That for which you would give anything and accept nothing in exchange is the most important thing in your life. And whatever that is, that is your God. This morning's text reveals what is some of these people's gods or God. And we see that this becomes exposed because others have turned from their made gods to a worship of the one true God. And it is a reminder to us today that God will turn the world upside down. And as a result, we can trust him with what is happening, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. And so if you got your Bibles, Acts 19, we're gonna read the first two verses and then we'll look at the rest of the text throughout the message. It says this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now these two verses actually are not a not necessarily a part of the story. They serve as a glimpse of what is going to happen uh, with Paul in the future and really what the rest of the book of Acts holds for us. See, Paul's about to move on from Ephesus. He's had a quite the ministry there. We saw that even last week and what's taken place. The church has been established. Believers have been strengthened. And Luke is giving us a glimpse into where Paul is headed. He has a desire to go by the way of Macedonia and Achaia to Jerusalem to deliver an offering that had been collected by the Gentile church. And then from Jerusalem, he plans to go to Rome. That's what the text tells us. And so we have this snapshot. Okay, here's what the rest of Paul's ministry and and mission is gonna look like. And And Luke gives us this. But you'll notice that he doesn't quite leave just yet. We see his plans, but in 22, he sends two people ahead of himself and he stays in Ephesus for a time. Now, there's not an, a known reason why he stayed. Maybe it was just likely that it just needed to tie up some loose ends. But he sends these people ahead. And as he's making these plans and he, he decides to stay and tie up these loose ends, some things begin to happen as we'll begin to reading in verse 23 here in just a minute. But I want to point out something to you at the very beginning of this. After these two verses, Paul actually becomes a bystander in this story. He's actually not the main person He's not the main central focus of this. He actually is like on the margins of this story because the main emphasis here is that Jesus is confronting idols and idol worship and he shows himself greater than them. Literally, he's gonna turn the world upside down here. And last week, you can remember, right? 
what happened with the Ephesians when, uh, when uh, Paul began to do these miracles and these miracles were happening from even his clothes, that, the sweatbands of, that he had on and miracles were happening. If you remember at the end of that story, there was this, this thing that was taking place in which people were repenting of their sin, bringing it con- and burning their books, right? This sign of like, I'm forsaking my old way of life and I'm now living this new life. And as a result of this, the Ephesians began to be moved to the fear of the Lord because of the witness of the power through miracles and the judgment of those who misuse their name. So they began to confess. They began to forsake their old way of life because Jesus had changed their life. Their affections had been transformed. And today we're gonna pick up with a continuation of that story because when Jesus gives new life, he expels the old life. These people who once worshiped idols are now exalting Jesus. And then God starts to settle the the marketplaces of life. And so a spiritual awakening was happening in Ephesus. And let's read what happens as a result of that beginning in verse 23 through 27. Says this, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only to this trade of ours, Um, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. The first thing that we see when God begins to turn the world upside down is that God confronts idolatry. See, there's this booming business. We talked about the exorcist last week. That was a business in Ephesus, but there was also another booming business. It was those who made Uh, replicas of Artemis that people could buy as souvenirs and put on there. So this idol makers, this was a booming business for them. And as the economy was dependent upon them, and it was such a profitable business, it was considered one of the main financial institutions of Asia. These craftsmen, as we learn about Demetrius, they made silver replicas or silver shrines of Artemis. There were others who might've made clay or, or, or um, copper or, or other kinds of, of materials used to make these temples of Artemis, these replicas of it. And people would buy them as souvenirs or, or they would um, go uh, take them and actually put them at home on their altars at their home. And this is why Demetrius has entered the picture because he starts to see the writing on the wall here. Writing on the wall is his weight. These Christians who are now following the way have begun to abandon their idol worship and therefore they're not buying things from us anymore. And this is starting to actually affect my pocketbook. See, nobody had a problem with Christianity until it started affecting their wealth and resources and jobs. And then things began to to happen here because see Demetrius is we're told by Luke is an idol worshiper and an idol maker. Luke purposely paints him in a negative light because his idol worship and his business as an idol maker set up the narrative as a battle that is about to happen. But Demetrius was clever in his work to respond to the spiritual awakening that Christ was doing in the life of the Ephesians. 
So that, let's talk about how he was, he was uh, what the text tells us, how he was kind of clever in his response, because I think these speak to you and I, and they speak to the idols that we can have in our own lives and in our own hearts. The first thing that we see is this, is that he gathers up people like him. So he, he gathers up workmen in similar trades and silversmiths, and he, he begins to speak to them that, listen, well, the spiritual awakening is having an economic impact on our life. Now, again, he had no problem gathering a crowd here because what's happening during this time is there's this month-long festival going on. Uh, it's called the Festival of Artemis. This month-long festival is where pilgrims came to participate in athletic events, drink. They participated in sexual immorality. It was a time that was described that every place was filled of a multitude of men and many of them drunk. He did not have a problem gathering a crowd of people. And so as he begins to gather these people that are, are a part of this work and, and are interested in this livelihood, he begins to speak to them. Now, here's the deal. They didn't have a problem with Christianity until people stopped buying their idols. But this is always the case with the gospel message. When Christ is preached, hearts are touched, lives are changed, then it's going to have an effect on the world. Christians turn from worldly things, and if we turn from enough worldly things, then repercussions are felt, which then creates opposition. So Demetrius gathers up these men, convincing them that, what did he say? That Paul is preaching that God's made with hands are not God. So he, he tells them and he accuses. Paul's been preaching this, not just here, but all throughout Asia. And, and because of this, people are turning away from these gods and they're worshiping other things. Now, it's obvious Demetrius's heart behind what's happening here. His, he is bothered by the fact that his job and his money and resources are becoming severely impacted by this Christian movement. His opposition and persecution was economically motivated. Listen, Christianity becomes a problem when it affects people's wallets. And that's what's happening here. Why? Because money is the most sensitive part of our human lives. So when money started to dry up, because people were turning from their idol worship to Christ, people got unhappy. And, and here's how this applies to you and I and how we have to consider this is because the lure of money is something that transcends culture. So many people today do not bow down to carved images or statues in, in our world today. But many bow down to the idol of money. So let me remind you of something this morning. No matter how little or how much money you have, it'll always leave you unsatisfied, never give you the full security that you desire, and you will always think that you need more of it. The love of money has kept people away from Jesus throughout history. Demetrius this was what was being exposed in his life. It's why he gathered them together. But you'll notice that Demetrius sought to hide his idol of money by including a couple of other elements. And I, I summarize them in this way, religion and patriotism. Now notice what he did. He tells him that there's this impact that's gonna happen. He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And in verse 26, he began to speak to their religion. And you've seen here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, that Paul's persuaded to turn away great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And in verse 27, and there is danger not only to this trade of ours, 
but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So he begins to speak, sneak in a little bit of religious zeal. He begins to hide his greed behind religious loyalty, and he is afraid that Artemis will be reckoned to nothing. This is a big deal because Artemis' temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Paul's preaching, right, that God's made with human hands are not God's. So Paul's message, as he was declaring, it was a threat to Artemis and her rightful glory. Now, Demetrius knew he could get the masses behind defending the honor and reputation of Artemis in her temple. And listen, I, I want to be very clear here. Now, some of you are like, I don't know how this applies to me. I don't worship no carved image. I don't worship a false god. Well, let me, let me say this. We have to be careful that we don't make an idol out of our religion where we find ourselves more worried about our religious traditions, our programs, our activities, that we trade things for our Savior and his gospel message. Listen, people who love Jesus can make an idol of their church and religious activity. And we have to guard against that we don't get so caught up in our religious traditions and programs and activities that we, that we miss what Christ is doing in our world. And listen, I, I was at a conference with a bunch of pastors this that Wednesday through yesterday, I got back yesterday evening. And a theme that they continue to put in front of us is this. Yes, you can be busy doing things for Jesus and miss Jesus. The very good things you do in Jesus' names can actually be idols of your own worship. But not only did he mask it behind religion, he masked it behind patriotism. If you keep reading, they were worried that she might be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed for her magnificence. And then it says, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So what he began to say is, listen, this Ephesus that you knew could be really impacted by what's happening with these believers. So he spun his argument not only to be about finances and religion, but he, he, he spanned it as Ephesus or even the world who worships Artemis that they knew could be impacted negatively by what's happening. So he finds a way to tack on patriotism, hiding his greed behind its mask. He basically was telling them that the reputation of Ephesus was online if they didn't stop the movement of the way. He's trying to stir up emotions of the Ephesians by pulling on the heartstrings of patriotism. He knew that these people would guard his economic interests by convincing them that they were heroes fighting for their land. Now listen, again, we start to think about this. I love the United States of America. I'm glad that I get to live here and I get to live in freedom and I get to worship freedom. But church, we've gotta be careful that the United States of America doesn't become our God. And the same can be said of you and I, if we are not careful, that we care about what's happening more in the United States than we do what's happening in the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, we have the right to be good citizens. We have the right to vote and have our voice 
made known. And we even have the responsibility as believers to live in this world that God has called us to, in this nation that God has called us to as Christians who image forth these things. But the truth is, is that if we are not careful, we can be more concerned about the downward spiral of the United States than we are that there are lost people dying and going to hell. And this is where God begins to confront idols. And this is what he's exposing as all of this is happening is because Demetrius, he's concerned about his money, but he's hiding it behind religion and patriotism. And he's gathering all these people together so that what happens in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out. So he begins to convince them of this. And I share this with us to say this, when you take materialism, religious fervor, and nationalism, and you, then you can find yourself with a deadly, volatile combination. The believers here in Ephesians had experienced life change, and as a result, their lives were being transformed. And the work of Christ will always impact economies and cities and neighborhoods. When Christianity threatens resources, other religions, or even our patriotism, you can guarantee that opposition and persecution will come. When you personally begin to experience a spiritual awakening inside of you, you can bet that the wrath of those who are opposed to it will fall upon you. Think about this. When believers stop watching certain TV shows or rated R movies or listening to music full of immorality and innuendo, they stop investing time and resources in arts and entertainment and sports that have become idols in their lives, don't you think that people will feel that and take notice of that? But so often in America, we are covered with materialism and sensuality. We're desensitized to the offerings of the world and their entrapments. We're, in, we're enamored by the mammon offered by this world. And we often enjoy it without any remorse whatsoever. So what's happened to us is our Christian witness has become anemic and apathetic and even corrupted. There is no way that you can be filled with the spirit of God and set your minds on the things of this earth. There is no way that you can be filled with the Spirit of God and live for money. There is no way that you can be filled with the Spirit of God and consume entertainment that feeds the flesh. And there is no way that you can be filled with the Spirit of God and have unrepentant sin in your life. See, we're not perfect, but the Spirit of God filling our life won't let these idols take place. The Spirit of God reminds us that, hey, we might be more concerned about what's happening here than we are what's happening in God's kingdom. Hey, we might be more concerned about the pursuit of this endeavor so that you can receive this than you are about pursuing Jesus. And so God begins to confront idolatry. And what we see in Ephesians is we see that those who have been redeemed and set and are now following the way that their life had been transformed and filled with the Spirit. And so the, I ask you the question, do you desire the same? The second thing we see here is that God protects his people and he gives his people peace. So God's confronted the idolatry. It's become exposed. I've already read to you verse 28, what's happening. They become enraged. They cry out, great Artemis of the Ephesians in verse 29, so that the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and uh, Aristarchus. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go into among the crowd and the disciples would not let him and even some um, Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him were urging him not to venture into the, to the theater. 
Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So see, we now see God beginning to protect his people. See, the, when, what do people do when their idols are threatened? They riot. Instead of repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ, they decide to attack the message and the messengers. And so chaos begins to unfold. They fill the streets shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, making their way to a 24,000 seat amphitheater. And they're dragging people with them that belong to, belong to Paul. They, they, I don't know why they couldn't get Paul. They couldn't find Paul, whatever. They can't find him. So they go get some of his traveling companions. And listen, as they fill in the streets and they're shouting this out, this was a normal formula for pagan worship. In, in, in the early church and in ancient history here, and when you wanted to be a part of pagan worship, you would say great is and then tag on whatever idol or, worship, or God that you were worshiping. And so they're, they're declaring this. Now, can you imagine sitting in a crowd and listening to the same thing being yelled over and over for two hours? The same thing over and over. I don't know about you, but like, I was just driving back from Oklahoma City last night. My family picked me up at the airport and like my kid was in the back and he just kept making the same noise, right? So finally I was like, please stop, right? Like imagine being in the scene where it's just this chaotic moment, yelling and screaming, okay? It was an incredibly tense scene so much that if anyone in that crowd would have decided to physically attack any of the believers, it could have been a very deadly event. But here's the thing I want us to notice about this crowd. A chaotic crowd is a defeated and conquered crowd. Their confusion was evidence of their defeat. We live in a chaotic and confused world. And church, it's a reminder to you and us that the way of the world leads to destruction. It does not lead to life. They can't get to Paul, so they grab two of his buddies. They bring him out. Gaius had been baptized by Paul and was someone who housed a church in his home. Aristarchus was a Thessalonian who traveled with Paul and was even imprisoned with him. Now, we don't know what they plan to do with him, but we know that they've got them out in front of this large crowd inside of this amphitheater. Now, you'll notice this is the only mention of Paul in this whole story. In verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, so I, I picture this. Remember, Paul, we think of him like Rock the Dwayne Johnson, this big guy that's coming in. He's actually, his physical presence wasn't that impressive. But I picture this guy's like, let me have him. Let me get into that amphitheater, all these people, and I'll, I'll quiet them down. And notice what happens. The disciples would not let him. The mention of his disciples show an intimate following that had formed around Paul in Ephesus. And they plead with him, to avoid the mob. But notice it wasn't just some other believers that had gathered around Paul. Notice that there's a group of people named, okay, the Azarchs. These leaders, these were leaders in the government. These prominent people in Asia were considered Paul's friends and they had a dual motive for preventing fall. One, they wanted to keep public order, but they also wanted to protect their friend. The text even tells us they were friends of his. And it is a reminder that we as Christians can be in good standing with city, state, and federal government leaders, right? It goes back to our, our citizenship and being good citizens and Christ-like citizens in the world because Paul and these other believers, they, they had become built good relationships with people who had leadership in the government and in the city. 
So much so that as Paul is trying to get into this place, God uses them to prevent him, to protect him. Now, when you think about this, you think about, okay, why would Paul just listen to them and and back out? And we don't actually see his response to it, but here's the only reason why I can think that Paul could do this while he didn't push through and make his way into that amphitheater. He and other believers were at peace in the midst of this situation. They ultimately trusted God knowing that he had in the past and he will protect his people in the future. And I'll tell you where this peace comes from. This peace comes from an inward purity, a life filled with the spirit. Paul regularly was communing with God so that in this moment, as this opposition came, it wasn't like friends telling him they didn't want him to do this and they were really concerned about his safety. It was also about that he understood that God was using them to prevent him from stepping into this scene. And when there are no walls or obstacles between you and God, you can rest assured that God is standing with you. And I think that Paul knew that in this moment. But notice what happened though. Paul doesn't get in, but somebody else gets pushed in. And you can see this in verse uh, 32 and 33. It says, now some cried out one thing, some another, simply in confusion. Most of them didn't know why they had come together. But some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. So now there's this, this mob mentality that's happened here. It says that they, some are yelling one thing and some are yelling another. There's confusion about what it means. And the word confusion here means to pour together, literally giving us this idea that they were being stirred up, agitated, in total uproar. And this mob mentality, and mob mentality means this, when people have suspended their logical thinking and are now feeding off a collective sense of power and rage. So as this is unfolding, it's a reminder that you and I have to be careful that we are regularly engaging our mind and determining to obey God. This keeps us from getting caught up in a mob mentality. It's like I was in line in Nashville on Wednesday. Got off the airplane. Guys, I'm just gonna tell you the truth. If you ever travel with me and we have to rent a car, we're always gonna wait the longest. I come down the escalator and every single car rental place has nobody in line except the one that I rented from. I get up to the line, I'm like ninth in line. I ask the person in front of me, how long have you been here? And they say, I've been here for 35 minutes. And I was like, oh man, you're 35 minutes and you're ninth in line. And as I waited in line and we crept up on an hour, the crowd started to become really restless. I heard people on phone with Dollar's um, corporate office. They were yelling and screaming. I heard people talking to the people up front and people started stirring to each other. And I could see people starting to lose their logical mind. They They were not thinking. And so much so that like, People actually left our line and went over to the Hertz counter because Hertz owns Dollar and Thrifty and we're trying to convince them to let them go in line to which they were all sent back. And by the way, when all those people left in line, I moved up in line. <laughs> and as this mob mentality is unfolding, I have my own, I got my own things. Like, I, I'm, I'm not a very patient person. I mean, I... Time to get off an airplane. It's like, I want to get out as fast as I can, right? And so I'm in this moment where I'm like, do I join in this mob thinking? But then I'm like, Lord, I ain't got nowhere to be. I'm fine. 
And Lord and I are having this conversation, so much so that somebody says, how come you're not really upset about what's happening here? And I'm like, I don't really have anywhere to be, so there's really no reason to be upset. But I very easily could have fallen into the mob mentality of that if I'm not careful, because what happens with us is we lose our logical thinking. We begin to feed off a collective sense of power and rage, and we've gotta be careful against that. It's God's way of protecting us when the mob starts to raise up, that we, when we become determined to obey God, we will do what honors and pleases him and we'll keep ourselves from getting sucked into the vortex. And so here's what happens. It's another reminder yet of the defeat of this mob because even in Greco-Roman literature, a confused mob was a defeated mob. But there's this confusing part with Alexander that comes into play. He's pushed out into the crowd to speak and it's confusing because you're not really told why did Alexander get shoved out there? Paul was prevented from doing it. Now Alexander, a Jew, is being thrown out there. And there's two questions that come to mind with this. One, was it to stand in solidarity with Christianity because Jews and Christians both rejected idol worship? Or was it to distance Jewish belief from Christianity? Regardless of how we interpret it, many believe that it was basically the Jews saying, hey, this is Alexander, let him speak to the crowd because we wanna distance ourselves from the way because of all that's happening here. Regardless, the crowd drowned him out and for the next two hours, they kept chaining great Artemis of the Ephesians and Luke is beginning to emphasize how chaos was reigning, yet God was in the business of protecting and delivering his people. Listen, things may not turn out the way out with protection like we hope, or we may not be delivered from something like we want, but we can rest assured that God always comes when the Holy Spirit is reigning on our hearts. God had provided us peace, we just need to claim it. And it brings us to this third part that God delivers his people. You'll notice here in the rest of the text, it says, well, when they recognized in verse 34 that he was a Jew in about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesians, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is, temp- that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers or goddess of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they are there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. And notice in verse 40. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. See, God was always in control the whole time. In the midst of this riot, God was moving in the midst of the chaos, the shouting and the tension, so much so that he was stirring in the heart of a local authority, a clerk, a a mayor-like person to to stop this riot from continuing. And you know what happens with this and why we see God deliverance? The believers were declared innocent and the tables were turned. See, the official brought people to their senses. He's like, listen, you have nothing to worry about. If the city of Ephesus is the place in which Artemis and her temple resides. And listen, nothing's been done. It's gonna take that away from us. And so, but he also begins to say, listen, these people that you've dragged out here in front of the masses, they're innocent. 
They haven't done any crimes. They haven't blasphemed the goddess. They haven't stolen any idols. They haven't defaced the temple. So the clerk tells Demetrius, if you got a problem with them, you take it to the courts and let the courts settle it. And what started out with Christians being the ones who were the threat, yet ends with Christians being the ones who are declared innocent. It's a reminder that God is in the business of delivering his people. And isn't that what's gonna happen at the end of life when our physical life on earth is over? Isn't that what's gonna happen when we stand before God? That those that know him will be declared innocent and be brought into the kingdom of God and that those who are not, they will be, they will be cast out, they will be separated from God from all of eternity. We will be delivered in the end and God is in the business of delivering us. But he, the tables also get turned because Ephesus was on the verge of losing their self-governing privileges if this riot continued. So the clerk turns the tables on them and says, if anybody in this room is guilty, in this theater is guilty, it's all of you that are shouting and screaming because of unlawful assembly. You're the ones that's breaking the law. And I find it fascinating that at the end of this story, you have Christians being declared blameless while the rest of the citizens of Ephesus are guilty of unlawful assembly. They were confused and divided. Yet it was ultimately the Ephesians who were walking their own dangerous paths as they spurned the Messiah and his witnesses. Listen, they weren't just possible trouble with Rome. There was gonna be trouble for all of eternity unless if they did not turn from their sin and their idol worship and turn to Jesus. So what happens? The assembly dismisses and they walk away quietly. It is a reminder to you and me that God is in the business of delivering his people. See, Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus. People believed repented of their sin, and the world was turned upside down. It's a, this story reminds us, church, that if we're not careful, we can allow our worldly concerns to drown out the voice of truth. We need to ask God for ears to hear and for the courage to go against the flow and living out the truth, even if the mob is coming for us. So how is your spiritual life today? Are you desensitized to sin? Are you engaged in things from your past that are not pleasing to the Lord? Are you indistinguishable from our decaying culture? Is your life spirit-filled? Is your life making a difference? Is your life at odds with the world? See, if you long for a transformed life, you first need to trust Jesus as your savior. You need to surrender to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. You need to name and confess your sin, rely upon the Lord for strength, immediately obey what he's asked you to do and rest in him. These are what we saw in the believers in Ephesus. And we also saw those who don't. Chaos and confusion. I don't know about you, but I'd rather live with the one that I can rest in than live in chaos and confusion. As we gather around the Lord's table today, we have in mind how God turned upside down the world. He did it by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to conquer sin and death. And because of that, you and I can be offered eternal life. It's the very reason we gather around the table is to remember what Christ has done for us. As Matthew 26, 26 through 29 tells us, I read this every time we take the Lord's Supper. 
But now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper is a powerful act of worship that confronts our sinfulness and reminds us of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Jesus commands us to obey the Lord's Supper until he returns because he desires for us to be reminded that the cross is central to his work. Jesus gives us the bread, the bread of the Passover meal, as a meaning of what, gives it a new meaning of what the bread symbolizes. It's his broken body and his death upon the cross. And taking of and eating this bread is a reminder that Jesus would be for our benefit. The cup, Jesus gives it a new meaning. It's his blood shed upon the cross. And as Jesus refers to the cup as the blood of, as my blood poured out, it is Jesus' blood, which his people's, which is his people's salvation. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, Jesus died for everyone. But to those who believe, their sins will be cleansed and new life will be given to them, establishing a new covenant. You know what the good news about this covenant is? It's not based upon you and I's work. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his forgiveness. What this foundational message of the Lord's Supper communicates is both community and a future. We share the Lord's Supper together. This covenant language in verse 28 implies creating a community of those who, when they eat or drink at the Lord's table, identify with a saving faith that they have through Jesus Christ. But it's also a future. Jesus left, but he's promised he's returning. And when he returns, we will sit with him at the Lord's table forever. We celebrate the Lord's Supper as we look back at his death and his resurrection and his redemptive death, but we celebrate his coming and we anticipate his return. Now, not everyone should receive the Lord's Supper. You shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, and you shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper if your heart is not right with the Lord. So as we move into taking the Lord's Supper, I ask you to take out the elements. You'll find the bread is on the bottom of the cup. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 24 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, our Lord and Savior, whose body was broken, beaten, and crucified so that our sin could be dealt with. And we thank you for his broken body. And we thank you that through his broken body, we can have life and have it to the fullest. And as we take of this bread today, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. John 6, 35 says, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's take and eat this morning. Taking the cup. 
1 Corinthians 11, 25 and 26 says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray together and give thanks for the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood. We thank you that by your shed blood, we can have the forgiveness of sin. We thank you that as the blood poured out of you, you did it because you love us and you wanted a restored and redeemed relationship with us. And we thank you that by your sacrifice, your shed blood, we can have a right relationship with God. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sin, according to the riches of his grace. Let us take and drink this morning in remembrance of Jesus. Let us pray together this morning.